0: Hi, I'm Kara Oakley.
1: And I'm Susie Rigdon. Welcome to a new season of the Fall for the Book podcast, part of the Watershed Lit Station. We can't wait to sit down again with writers from across the genre spectrum. To hear all of our episodes, subscribe on SoundCloud, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Visit fallforthebook.org to find out more.
0: Today we're going to be talking with Alma Katsu, who has written seven different novels, but um, a few of hers are historical fiction, and she's touched on like very different parts of Of history, she's written about the Titanic. She's written about the Donner Party, and um, her new book is about Japanese internment um, in the U.S. during World War II. So, I was kind of curious if you had any of your own sort of historical obsessions. I feel like everybody has a particular period of history that, that that's really interesting to them.
1: Yeah. So in a past episode, I mentioned a mountain climber, Nims Persia, and I thought he was totally amazing. Um, but that really stems from my interest in the history of climbing Mount Everest. And so I, I've read a number of books about this, about some of the different, because it was attempted a number of times before it was, it was finally climbed in the 50s. And so what I think is really interesting is I read these books about the first attempt, the second attempt interrupted by world war one. And then, you know, all of those people who fought in the war, those who survived came back and then tried to climb again. And then world war two happened and then they came back and tried to climb again. And it was finally, um, uh, it was finally conquered by Sir Edmund Hillary and, and Tenzing Norgay. And what I think is really interesting is like, whether it's historical fiction or just writing history there, it's so complex. It's not just say, climbing this mountain. It's the, the British campaigns in India. It's World War. And I've learned about so much about World War I just through reading about climbing Mount Everest. And so I love those intricacies and in how everything is just so connected. I love the idea of like looking at
0: a particular moment in history through the lens of something totally unexpected, like like mountain climbing. And then you see this this whole other history that sort of surrounds it. So w- one of mine was, and I th- I feel like everybody had this phase, but when I was a kid, I was so into the Titanic. Um, yes. And so, yeah, we're going to go from like the top of Mount Everest to the bottom of the ocean right here for a minute. But like, of course, I was into the movie as a kid, but I read everything about it. Like my, my best friend and I like got all of like, there was a historian named Walter Lord who wrote all of these books about the Titanic. And we read all of those. We watched we watched documentaries. We taped documentaries um, that interviewed the survivors and watched all the documentaries about, about Robert Ballard and the discovery of the wreck. And we were so, so into it. One of the things that I got out of it that uh, that I hadn't thought about before is I think learning about the Titanic was one of my first introductions to ideas of of class and, and socioeconomic privilege and and kind of seeing how some of that played out in this sort of microcosm of almost like a society that was on this ship for five days, and that was that was one of my sort of like first obsessions with uh, with a particular time in history.
1: Wow, that really is obsessed. I thought you were going to just you know bring up the old school. What is it, the American Girl doll book or something? Do you know what I'm talking oh, about where yeah, she was on yeah. the Titanic?
0: There, there was like the Dear America series that talked about yes, different historical it. periods, and that was and that was, that was one of them. The Titanic was one of them, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Oh, wow. No, we we got it. We got into it. It was it, it, it was a thing when my best friend and I were little.
1: <laughs> but that's what's so great about being interested in different historical periods or historical fiction or whatever it is is that you really are encouraged to dive into that period and then not just reading one piece of source material, but then you know, looking at the bibliography or whatever it is, uh, the work cited and going and finding all of these other pieces and different writers writing about, in my example, one mountain climber, but from totally different angles, you know, getting one line in one book and then an entire historical piece just about them. So it opens up a lot of windows. This is how you can
0: (laughs) tell we're academics. We're getting really excited about what we find in the bibliography. Yes! Well, I'm... (laughs) I'm really excited to talk with Alma with Katsu and hear a little bit about her new book and, and some of her others as well. Alma Katsu is the award winning author of seven novels. Her latest is The Fervor, a reimagining of the Japanese internment that Booklist calls a stunning triumph. Red Widow, her first espionage novel, is a nominee for the Thriller Writers Award for Best Novel, was a New York Times editor's choice, and is in development for a TV series. Welcome, Alma.
2: Thank you for having me.
0: I'm, I'm really thrilled to be here. We we want to start talking about your, your new book first. The fervor takes place near the end of World War II and it focuses on a woman and her daughter in a Japanese internment camp. Now, you've written other historical novels before. What drew you to this particular time in American history?
2: Well, probably the biggest thing is that it, you know, has uh something to do with my own life. My Um, husband's family were interned and um, I'm half Japanese, but my mom is from Japan. And so while I had always known about the internment, I really didn't know the full story until I got married. And we started hearing the stories from some of his family members. And actually, doing a lot more research ourselves, watching a lot of documentaries and that sort of thing, so I knew what a complicated, multi-dimensional issue it really was. And and I'd always hoped I'd get the chance to write about it and explore it someday in a novel. So I was really, really thrilled to have that opportunity with the fervor.
1: So of course, you've got this awesome twist in the story. I mean the the camps were horrible enough, but you're looking at them through the lens of a horror story. So, which I find so fascinating. So what did you hope that looking at this through the horror genre, how, what did you hope would be illuminated in the history of, of the Japanese internment during World War II? Well,
2: you know, I find when I talk to folks, About historical events, but this one in particular, you know, it's looked at very dryly as just sort of, you know, that the historical thing that actually happened. But when you stop and think about what happened to Americans, about 70,000 of the 120,000 folks who were sent to camps were actually American citizens. And when you look what This country chose to do to its citizens and to to other folks who were here absolutely legally, you know, the incredible loss of property, the violence and all that. You're right, it's pretty horrible in itself, but I don't think that most people get the impact from just the way the story's told you know, in the course of, of talking about history or something. And that's been the really interesting thing about writing these historical novels, historical fiction, but adding the supernatural element. I think it really helps bring out to people, drive home the the really horrific aspects of things.
0: You're talking a little bit about bringing in the supernatural and you do talk a little bit about these elements of of Japanese folklore. So I kind of want to ask about that. Is there a particular piece of, Folklore
2: or a piece of Japanese mythology you would you would recommend that people read about? Oh, goodness gracious. You know, I feel in some ways that you almost need to be a PhD in the subject to do it justice because it's so rich and deep. And even though I sort of grew up with a lot of these stories from my mom, like I remember having Japanese fairy tale books and and that sort of thing as a child. You know, I don't feel like I'm in any way qualified to really uh, speak in depth in it. But it is fascinating. You know, I was raised a Roman Catholic, which is this one particular kind of religion with very specific views. At the same time, though, you know, like the priests knew I went to a Catholic school and the priests knew that my mom was Buddhist. And so I would come in with just these two religions coexisting in my head without any sort of critical thought on it. You know, I was just a little kid at the time. And it wasn't until much later that I realized how interesting and different, you know, Shintoism and and and. I think what actually goes earlier than that, but all of the folklore and that sort of thing in Japan, how really interesting it is and how different from a lot of Western religions. And so that's part of what I wanted to bring in. And the other thing that some people have noticed about the element of um, Japanese uh, folklore in the story is that for the Japanese characters, when ghosts appear and that sort of thing, it's not alarming, right? Because it's part of our everyday life. I like to joke that there's a ghost or a demon for every crossroads or temple in Japan, and that's just part of it. But when the uh, Western folks run into ghosts, or you know, ghosts of his wife, for instance, you know, it's it's shocking for them. It's it it kind of draws them up short. And so I just liked having that, um, you know, that sort of texture in the story too.
0: I wanted to ask, too, a little more about some of the specific characters in this. Of course, in the camps, you have Mako and, um, and her daughter. Um, you, you have Archie, you have Fran. One of the things I sort of noticed in reading this book is it, it seems like you, you kind of enjoy writing these characters who are outsiders a little bit, you know, like in the camps. Mako and her daughter are, are are considered outsiders a little bit because Mako is, is of course married to a white man and and her daughter is um is, is only half Japanese. Like Fran is this female reporter who is it seems like something of an, an, an anomaly in the nineteen forties. Right. So I was really curious about like this like approaching a story from the view of these characters who are kind of
2: outsiders in a certain way. Well, you know, I wonder if that's just something authors tend to do because maybe. Authors themselves tend to be, see themselves as outsiders, and that we're sort of documenting the world around us. I think a lot of writers probably, you know, really identify with being an outsider. Now, I certainly did. I grew up in a very small town in New England, which was predominantly white. And um, it's a very small town. There was like one Jewish family, one Black family, and we were the one Asian family. So we definitely, you know, like that's how we were described. We definitely felt like outsiders. I mean, you know, that's how we retreated. And I think that's partly how I, you know, just tend to sort of observe people. But for this particular book, what was what was interesting for me is, you know, my three historical horror novels have evolved. The first one, The Hunger, which was about the Donner Party, stayed very, very close to the history. And almost, all, almost all the characters were people in real, who, you know, existed in real life and went through that ordeal. The second book had to do with the Titanic. And I kind of strayed away from that. While the majority of the characters uh, were historical figures, some of the main characters were not. And they might have been based on sort of amalgamation of of some of the real people, but in this book, I really went much farther in that direction um, because I really enjoyed having the freedom of having these completely fictional characters. You know sometimes there's a little bit of a ethical dilemma there too when you're writing about people who really existed and how much of how much liberty can you really take with their lives and There were specific things I wanted to say in this book, and so the characters had to have certain elements in their lives and had to be free to do certain things and so of the main characters, the only one who's a real person is Archie Mitchell, and we can talk about him if you're interested and but he also has to play a specific role in the book, because the book is is about what happened during World War II. And it's about the internment, but it's also about what we're seeing today. And it's a statement on, you know, the rise of anti-Asian hate in this country, which has been going on since the beginning of COVID and, and the politicalization of all that. And I wanted to look at certain aspects of it. And one of it was the role of religion. In, you know, this white supremacy and nationalism. And so in real life, Archie Mitchell was a preacher, he was a a missionary. And so it just made kind of a, um, you know, it was kind of convenient to have a character based on him because he could serve that role as well.
1: You brought up so many interesting facets of writing Historical fiction and researching. And, you know, I've I've done some research for my own historical fiction things. And, and you know, Kara and I at the beginning of this episode were talking about you start reading about one aspect of history and then you end up broadening and broadening and broadening. And what I love about these three books is they are so different, different periods, different groups of people. I mean, really dear different historical eras for a lot of this. So I, I'm just so curious about how. The research uh, process has changed or maybe stay the same, especially given what you're talking about with, you know, staying super tight to the history uh, in the hunger and then sort of broadening out from there.
2: Yes, it is a lot of work writing these books, as I'm sure you can appreciate. And the other interesting thing about writing historical fiction is I think when people hear the term, they maybe think of a specific type of book, you know, one that is, is, um, You know, it's either very specific to one event or what's more common is it's set in a particular era and the characters may be fictional and the conflict may be fictional, but it's very tight to to the history of that era. And that's how I started out. Although, of course, it's, you know, I'm very upfront and saying these are reimaginings, they have a horror twist or supernatural element. So we know it's not going to be 100% authentic to the actual history, or let's hope. But um, the first book, for instance, The Daughter Party Story, which I knew a fair amount about it, but you know, I found out really quickly once I start writing these books, I don't know as much as I think I know. So it was a ton of research. And then I went to the Titanic, which was even worse because it was exponentially so much bigger. Um, you know, I went from about a hundred core characters for the Donner party to 2,300 people who were on the ship on the Titanic. Plus we had the second sinking. Um, and there's a legion of fans who are just, you know, diehard Titanic fans who know all of the details inside and out. And it makes you a little nervous if you, you know, you just can't get anything wrong or you're going to get flooded with with um, hate mail. And honestly, I didn't get any of that for the Titanic. I was really surprised. But then the, the fervor has been completely opposite because I knew the story so well. You know, I had talked to so many people who had been in the camps or relatives who had been in the camps saw a lot of documentaries, which really gave a lot of the background, the political um, situation and all that, that I, uh, it, I feel a little embarrassed to say it, but I didn't have to do that much research for this book. It all just came rushing back once I started putting the story together.
1: And I'd be curious about the kinds of research. Cause it sounds like with the fervor, it's a lot of really personal connections and, you know, stories that you're just kind of ingrained with you. But I would imagine You know, even just between the deep, that must have been a lot of like newspaper clippings and manifests and that kind of stuff. Right. And then how the hunger, I mean, how much was there really for westward expansion, you know, that sort of traveling?
2: You know, you've hit on it. There's this whole range of things you need to know to write a uh, historical fiction. You know, from the very broad sort of background, what was the what are the factors that were driving change at the time of the historical event, down to the nuts and bolts, you know, about the people and reading some biographical information on them and understanding the important parts of the book. So, like for for The Hunger and the Donner Party, it's like knowing the parts of a wagon. Uh, For that, it was really, I had to understand um, the the actual route in a lot of detail and the timeline, very precise, what happened every day, because it did unfold like that. It was like chronological almost. And then because I got to step away from the exact history a little bit with the Titanic book, The Deep, although I still had to understand the timelines, yeah, it was, you know, deck plan. So I understood what um, you know, what rooms, what were the state rooms like? How are they located vis-a-vis some of the other common areas that we have coming up in the book? And you have to take a little bit of liberty there, you know, because it, you're trying to move things along. You can't have characters running up and down, you know, four flights of stairs on a massive ocean liner. So, um, and then there's a lot of spot research just as you're you're writing the scene. And I feel at least it's important not to build your scenes you know, around history that you want to involve, but the scene should be, you know, they're either developing character or moving the story forward. And as you're writing the scene, you have all these little details that pop up that you need to fill in. So you run off and do your spot research, like what kind of tea would have been popular on the Titanic? Or what did they eat for breakfast on on um, while they were, you know, riding the Oregon Trail? I don't know what it is, but every book I have to look up, what did people eat for breakfast at the
1: time? that would be the detail if you didn't that would be the detail that people would write to you about I'm sure <laughs> right.
2: Did they eat bagels on the Titanic I'm not so sure
1: <laughs> so we've talked a lot about the past but you, you've had this really amazing career you've written seven novels but you've also worked 30 years in intelligence can you talk about how that work influenced your writing maybe with Red Widow your first spy novel being the focus
2: Sure. Well, I've been very lucky. I mean, it's it's kind of it kind of have this backwards career, right? Cuz when people find out that I worked in intelligence. And yet I wrote these other books first. I wrote, you know, these historicals or these supernatural books or fantasies. They're they're just like gobsmacked. Like, why did you even do that? That's a great question. Because as you guys know, platform is so important for writers. You know, it's important when you talk about a book, you know, to have some of that authenticity and to be able to talk about what influenced you and all that. And so people automatically think, why didn't you write a spy novel first? Well, because I was still working in, in at the time. And when you're still in the field, it's really, really hard. They don't like you to write about it at all. And so it was actually easier to sort of go the other route. But I was lucky enough to have a publisher who said at some point, you know, it was right around the time I retired. She said, you know, I know you've always wanted to write a spy novel. if you want to give it a try? And that ended up being Red Widow. And I knew there were a lot of things I wanted to write about. First of all, I really wanted it to be female centric because in pop culture, the women in intelligence are just not well represented. You know, the focus is usually it's usually written by a man or and or it's got a male main character. And they just focus on the way they look at their career is a little different than I think how most women have experienced it. And I love that this is fall for the book of Virginia, because I know there's going to be a lot of my colleagues in the audience, if not at CIA or NSA, some of the other agencies. And, you know, they'll they'll, it'll resonate with them. Right. Like I've gotten so much email and such from women who say, yeah, this is the most true to life (laughs) representation of what we went through and what it was really like to do the job. So that was the first thing was representing women. And then the second thing is, you know, like you said, I've had a long career was actually almost 35 years and, and I did policy work too. And so, you know, it's, I worked with some wonderful people, like super patriots people who did gave their all because they love their country and they know that they want to you know protect their fellow americans and in order to do this job though you have to make a lot of sacrifices and there's a lot of demands things that some people aren't aware of again everybody in virginia is going to be nodding their heads because they're all going through this too but you know, the endless monitoring and background checks and security stuff and declaring of your financial assets every two years and, you know, just crazy amounts of stuff to do the job. And then the pressures inside that I wanted to show what it was really like for people. And lastly is a real thing happened during my last couple of years at CIA that was just crazy. And I knew it would make a great, novel. And I told myself, if I ever get the chance to write a spy novel, I'm going to make that the story. So what happens in Red Widow is actually a true story. It's just changed a little bit because that story was actually in the news for a long time, but it was never publicly associated with CIA. And if I told you that, you would absolutely recognize it. So it's been it's it's been interesting doing that. I've had people come up and go, "Oh, that story could never happen," and then I get the joy telling them it's based on a true story. So it it was uh, writing that particular book was a challenge, but an incredible joy for me and now the second book's coming out in the spring so um we're really looking forward to that one and and hopefully the tv series will find its feet and and we'll have that to look forward to too i
0: really love hearing about the other
2: careers
0: that writers have because you know like i think the thing that, that a lot of readers forget is that is that so many writers have these day jobs or these these whole other lives outside of their writing writing usually isn't the sole career anymore and and you've done all of this stuff with the CIA you were a senior technology policy analyst and and a technology futurist I I I loved hearing about like the technology futurist stuff especially after thinking about so much about your historical fiction Um, and just like the different like the stark contrast between those I was really curious can you tell us a little bit more about what a technology futurist does and what sort of trends we might be looking forward to in the future?
2: Oh, my goodness. Yeah, it's kind of crazy. And it's even crazier when I tell you that I never really trained for this, right? My background, my degrees are in the humanities. It's just that when I started intelligence, which was so long ago, they didn't even churn out enough people at college, like with computer science degrees and all that kind of stuff. And a lot of uh, the folks, and I started at NSA, which is a super technical agency. So a lot of folks they hire, they just test you for aptitude. So I ended up having a fairly technical job when I started in intelligence. And it had to do with looking at emerging technologies, new technologies, and trying to figure out if, there was, if it was going to impact how we did intelligence And um, so I can't give you all the details. But you know, it has to do with telecommunications and computer science. And a long time ago, I mean, I was, I had just started, I was lucky enough to be on a team that actually kind of reverse engineered something that's very, very important to communications today. And everybody in the IC uses it to a degree. It touches everybody to a degree. Again, I can't tell you what it is. Fast forward to uh, this. I can tell you. So the era of social media when social media was just starting. And by this time I was at CIA and they came to me and they said, you know, we need somebody with a technical background to kind of look at social media and tell us, is there intelligence value there? This was in the mid 2000s, right? When Facebook was just overcoming (laughs) MySpace as a social platform, you know, and Twitter was just starting. And so I took everything I knew about how do you prosecute uh, a new technology and came up with like the early methodologies for that. So I started by having my roots in actual cases, right? This is a technology. Is it something we need to think about? And if it is, how do we Master it. So I did a lot of the early work in social media analytics. Worked with a lot of the best researchers in the world, whom I still talk to to this day. But by having that, eventually I just kind of moved in in, into positions where I consulted with programs that did technology uh, horizon forecasting, where we look out a period of time, usually no earlier than three years, because if it's less than three years, it's here. It's already being used. We're trying to look out a little bit. And if you look out more than 10 years, certainly 20 years, that's science fiction. Who the heck? It's really. So the sweet spot is like three to 10 years. We look out at technologies that are being developed and try to get a sense of whether there's something there of interest to the intelligence community. The interesting thing we found, though, is that it's usually not just the technology itself, but it's a confluence of other factors, usually societal, that that influence uptake. And it's the uptake that ends up, you know, making it broad, like, is it going to be MySpace or Facebook, right? And so there's a lot of prediction that goes into it. And so people in this field... Generally, especially in the intelligence community, and there's not a lot of us, it's just a handful of us, a lot of women, interestingly, but um, it's this, you know, we spend a lot of time looking at the science of analysis and how we do predictive analysis and God, I could go on for days (laughs) on that if you're interested. But the interesting thing is now with artificial intelligence and a lot of that is moving into the predictive realm. We're getting more technical methods, so we usually balance it between this like human-based evaluation process that people have been using for decades and decades, and now looking at which technology-based predictive methods uh, are as good as human, maybe better, or a combination of the two that help us really hit that sweet spot. Predicting what's going to happen is really, really hard. (laughs) I kind of I kind of want to read the science fiction that you're eventually going to write about
0: all of this, <laughs> if that's coming.
2: Well, you know, I've asked over and over again, I said, you know, it kind of would make sense for me to write a techno thriller or something like that. And so far, the answer's been no.
1: I also, in just what you're talking about with this, I'm hearing echoes of your research process, process for your historical mm-hmm. books, you know, seeing all these different threads and thinking. So it's uh, just very curious parallels there. You know, I I actually now teach
2: a course occasionally on um, doing research for your novel, particularly historical research, but it's not what most people think. Um, I didn't think about it until I started getting all these questions when I was writing The Hunger and people would come up to me afterwards and say, you know, I'm trying to write a historical novel and I just keep getting, you know, down, falling down these rabbit holes of research. Well, I was, you know, basically an analyst is a researcher and I was a research analyst for a long time. But but then eventually I became, you know, like I ran a research lab. I worked at RAND where we do these really big studies. And I realized, like you said, there were certain practices that I developed over the years that are common to research analysts that I, I was applying to writing novels. And so that's what my workshop is. It's um how we how to take these things. For instance, the number one thing is, You don't undertake a research project without having a key question that you're trying to answer. And what that does is it helps define the scope. So you're not just looking at everything under the sun, which is what happens to a lot of first-time historical fiction writers. They just don't know how to set those bounds. So I talk about things like that, setting your, your, you know, how to evaluate your sources, your information sources, because a lot of people... It's not that they can't go on and do the research, but especially in this day and age, we're so afraid of what we read online. Is it true? Is it not true? And people we find are, don't really always have the skills to make that evaluation. So I, I talk about how do you do that? How do you give yourself a framework for deciding what you're gonna use and what you're not gonna use?
0: It's been really interesting to talk with you about all of this today and you know, looking at the past and looking at the future and and, and how all of this ties into your writing. We've really enjoyed it. Thank you so much for being with us, Alma. Thank you for having me and just letting me sort of babble on my crazy stuff. The Fall for the Book podcast is produced by Susie Rigdon as a part of Watershed Lit. For more episodes, you can follow us on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, and Spotify. Fall for the Book is a nonprofit literary arts organization, and you can find more information about our programs and events at fallforthebook.org.
1: Read on.